G'day humans, this is the safe space for dangerous ideas, this is Uncomfortable Conversations with me, Josh Sepps, and how do you introduce today's guest, Ayan Hersey Ali? Well, maybe you start by doing a potted history of who she is for anyone who either isn't quite across it or kind of vaguely knows the name and the rough backstory, but could do with a little bit of brushing up, because one thing I didn't want to do in a rare hour that I was granted with Ayan was get her to rehash the same story that she's told a bazillion different times. If you want to listen to it elsewhere, uh, you can find one of those bazillion times to listen to, or I can just give you a a potted history right here. She is a a feminist, an activist, a a writer, a scholar, former politician. Uh, So she was born in Somalia. She's basically Dutch and American. She was born in Somalia And her dad was a revolutionary in the Somali civil war. He was in jail when she was very, very young. And when she was five and her dad was in jail, her grandmother, against the wishes of her father, thought it would be appropriate for her to do what all good young Muslim Somali girls did at the time, which was to be genitally mutilated. Um, So her grandmother found uh, a guy to do that. Ayan has subsequently said that she was grateful that it was a man who did it because the women were much more brutal at the time. Nonetheless, you get the impression, extremely conservative Muslim upbringing. When her dad was released from jail, they fled and bounced around the the Muslim world when she was sort of, you know, eight to, to 12. They lived in Saudi Arabia. They went to Ethiopia. They settled in Nairobi in Kenya in 1980. And Ayan was quite a, a conservative, a good Muslim girl. She sympathized with the views of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, she wore a hijab with her school uniform. She recalls agreeing with the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. Uh, so well well and truly ensconced in that worldview. But when she was in her early 20s, she traveled from Kenya to visit her family in Germany. And she had an impending arranged marriage back in Africa that she wasn't crazy about and somehow found the inspiration or the resilience to leave Germany and go to the Netherlands and request political asylum and say, I don't want to live this life. I don't want to go back and be chattel. I want to be free. The Netherlands granted her political asylum. She studied. She became de-radicalized. She became liberalized. She learned to speak a bazillion different languages. She's she's fluent in English, Somali, Arabic, Swahili, Amharic, which is the Ethiopian language, and also Dutch. And then at around this time, 9-11 happens. And she renounces Islam and says that she doesn't believe in Allah or in God. And that sets the course of her life on a completely different trajectory. And she becomes quite outspoken in the Netherlands, which is like many European, well, many Western countries grappling with what to do about its large Muslim population in the wake of this obvious uh, thunderbolt of 9-11 that's causing a lot of people to question uh, whether or not there's a problem there that needs to be addressed. And she insists that there is. She insists that the left in Western countries is not being fair dinkum, as we say in Australia, not being legit on the level about the problem of radical Islam. And so she runs for parliament 
And she basically says that the Dutch welfare state, in all of its generosity, has overlooked the abuse of Muslim women and girls in the Netherlands, has overlooked their social needs, and has contributed to the isolation and depression of individual Muslim girls by being so generous towards the broader Muslim community in ways that trample over the individual rights of the dissident or questioning or feminist or irreligious 15-year-old Muslim Dutch girl. And this, of course, becomes very controversial, not just in the Netherlands, but all over the world. And one other event that I actually remember from the time, even though I was still at university, was that Pim Fortein was a politician in the Netherlands who, during the Dutch national election campaign in 2002, he was not just a politician, he was an author and a, a businessman and an academic, and his he wasn't a far-rightist, but he was a, a former Marxist and left-wing politician who had become concerned about the consequences for liberalism, for Western European liberalism and freedom and individual rights and feminism and gay rights, of welcoming in very large numbers of conservative, mostly Muslim migrants. Not that the majority of Muslim of migrants were Muslim, but that the majority of the communities who were most antithetical towards those ideals of feminism uh, and egalitarianism were. And so he goes around talking about this during the 2002 Dutch election campaign. And nine days before the election, he is leaving a radio studio where he's just given an interview. And he's shot in the parking lot by a left-wing environmentalist and animal rights activist who's angry at him for exploiting Muslims and scapegoating Muslims. So... Pim is assassinated, and one of his good friends in the Netherlands is a writer and director, Theo van Gogh, who is the great-great-nephew of Vincent van Gogh, the greatest, one of the greatest artists of all time. He's the great-great, he's the great-grandson, rather, of Vincent van Gogh's brother, who was an art dealer, also called Theo van Gogh. And so Theo is uh, is a friend of Pim's, and he's also a friend of Ion Hersey Ali's. He's a writer, he's a director, and he, he starts making these these short movies about the problems of Islam in the Netherlands, one of which is a fictional exploration of the assassination of his friend, Pim Fortein, uh, and another of which is a short film called Submission, which Theo wrote with Ayan Hersey Ali. Uh, I think she wrote most of the script. She did the voiceover for it. She's very involved in this thing. and It was a short film that was critical of the treatment of women in Muslim societies. So on the 2nd of November, 2004, Theo van Gogh is cycling to work at about nine o'clock in the morning and he gets shot. And the attacker is an Islamist who approaches him and finishes off the job, not just with the gun, but then with a knife slashing his throat and trying to behead him. Uh, he doesn't quite manage to do so before bystanders chase him away and they find that he has stabbed Van Gogh in the stomach with a knife and pinned to the knife is a note with a death threat saying that Ayan Hersey Ali will be next. Imagine that. 
I mean, just pause for a moment and think about that. You've come from this totally brutalizing, misogynistic, sexist, backward society where you've had your most private parts of your body ripped apart by a medieval, misogynistic interpretation of a faith. And you flee, you start to speak out about the rights of people like you, and for doing so, one of your best friends and professional collaborators is killed, attempted to be beheaded, and a note is literally pinned to the knife in his chest saying you're next. So the Dutch Secret Service gives her protection. Uh, She's a parliamentarian, so she's got a bit of protection, but now she obviously gets a lot more, and she goes into hiding, and there's a sort of a parallel here between her and what Salman Rushdie went through, I guess, 15 years before. Uh, (laughs) Something that she had supported at the time, but now, of course, has had a, a tilt towards liberalism. And uh, in 2006, she gets recognized as the European of the Year by the American magazine Reader's Digest, but she also gets nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, an even higher honor, I would say, than the Reader's Digest nod. And uh, she subsequently moves to America from the Netherlands. Uh, There's a controversy about her asylum, and she drops out of parliament, and it leads to the fall of the Dutch government. I won't go into all of the ins and outs there, but there's a lot of... She's basically constantly a target of attack from people who regard her as being uh, an Islamophobe, as being someone who doesn't understand the rich diversity and uh, and complexity of Muslim life and who is playing into the concerns of the far right. And part of Ayan's point that she makes repeatedly in every book, including her latest book, which I'll get to in a sec, is that she wants to wrestle this conversation away from the far right. She wants to make sure that there are people who are talking frankly and openly about the need for a reformation within Islam, about the ways in which Islam can be improved. Uh, Because if we don't have that conversation, the far right will. And it's not going to take very many more 9-11s for the far right to win. And that scapegoating is going on already in quasi-authoritarian countries all over the place, like Hungary, like Poland. You even see the rise of the far right in countries like France. So anyway, we're skipping ahead a bit there. She moves to America. In 2010, Anwar Alalaki, the most popular uh, jihadist preacher probably in the world who is listened to online, Uh, by millions of radicalized young Muslims. He publishes a hit list in his magazine. He's got an actual magazine that gets published online called Inspire. And uh, he names Ayan Hirsi Ali and Salman Rushdie uh, on the assassination list. Uh, Also on the list, although added slightly later, is Stéphane Charb Charbonnier, who worked at Charlie Hebdo, the satirical magazine in Paris, This was a few years before someone obeyed that exhortation and pulled off the Charlie Hebdo attacks where Islamists with machine guns went into this satirical magazine and exterminated so many of those comics and artists and writers, one of whom was Schaub himself. And 
Ion Hercielli now reflects on the fact that when she first moved to the Netherlands from a strict Muslim upbringing in Africa, she was amazed and refreshed to see women alone in the Netherlands, riding on buses and trams and cycling, free, empowered, self-confident, unafraid, that this was something that she cherished about Western liberalism. And she notes that in some European suburbs of the big cities in Western Europe, there are now neighbourhoods where you don't see many women alone anymore. They're migrant-heavy neighbourhoods where young men wander around with swagger, first or second generation, and a woman who walks around without a headscarf, proudly, unafraid, the way that she saw them do in the early 1990s when she first moved there, is increasingly rare. And the question that she raises in her new book, which is called Prey, P-R-E-Y, and subtitled Immigration, Islam and the Erosion of Women's Rights, is that she's been watching the Me Too movement unfold in Western countries, especially America, and applauding it for shining a light on the plight of elite American women. But she's been asking herself, where is that light being shone on poor women of colour in the Muslim world? We are reluctant to hold Muslim men, Muslim conservatives, to the same standards that we expect of Westerners, or even to half the standards, because we're afraid of being called bigots towards Islam. Ayan is called a bigot towards Islam, even though few people understand the impact of conservative Islam on young girls better than she, having lived it herself. One of the interesting things that I would have loved to speak to her about if we'd had more time is precisely that contradiction, that we live in a moment where, thanks to the culture wars and I suppose what you might call wokeness or political correctness or identity politics, we are supposed to revere the personal experience, the lived experience, as the jargon goes, of people from minority communities. Um, It's impossible for a straight white male to plausibly discuss anything to do with indigenous rights or women's rights or African-American rights without adding an ocean of caveats before they speak, saying, well, of course, I'm not a member of that community. And so, you know, we need to hear from the voices themselves and we need to elevate uh, the voices of those communities. And when we hear people from those marginalized communities, their experience, their lived experience is treated as if it gives them a unique insight, not just into what it feels like to be a member of that community, but indeed into what the reality, the data of that community is. So, you know, even talking about something like, for example, the rate of Indigenous incarceration in Australia, or the rate of fatal police shootings of African American men in the United States, uh, or the rate of uh, Islamophobic bigotry against Muslims in Germany, say, any of these questions are things that are really being wrestled away from the sphere of uh, elite data scientists and policy wonks who tend to be disproportionately white and 
male and they are now being placed in the hands of people who have the lived experience to be able to tell us what it's really like to be a member of the subjugated community. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. The more voices, the better. Bravo. But where it becomes problematic is when you have a person who has the lived experience, as Ion does, but because they don't conform to what white, educated, Western left-wingers want to hear, their lived experience is derided or dismissed, or worse still, demonized as being bigotry because they don't have the right kind of minority experience. And Ayan Hirsi Ali has suffered this her entire life. Now, she's written so much and she is so she has spoken on so many things that it's a little bit difficult to even know where you start with uh, an interview like this. Her first book was called The Caged Virgin. Her second was called Infidel. That was a biography. Her third was called Nomad, From Islam to America. Her fourth was called Heretic, Why Islam Needs a Reformation Now. And I mentioned her most recent book, Pray. We really here just scratch the surface of thinking about the individual versus the community, what the pandemic and sort of vaccine mandates have in common with our relationship to multiculturalism. (laughs) You can hang on for that one. It's a tenuous thread, but it's a thread that we get to. And what women's role should be in the future and whether she's optimistic about the fate of liberalism. When we talk about liberalism here, we're not talking about, you know, a a political party or like the Liberal Party of Australia or something. We're talking about small L classic ideas of live and let live, freedom of speech and individual rights. Uh, I almost feel like I didn't do a good enough job with this interview because there are so many things that I would have liked to get to that we weren't able to get to, but it is a start. Enjoy the one and only. I am Hersey Ellie. How has your experience of the of the pandemic been? How has the past two years gone? Um, I belong to the category of people who will say I'm even embarrassed to complain at all. Mm. Because my life changed, but nothing dramatic. Um, I've not lost family members, even the ones who are living in Somalia, in the remotest parts of Somalia. I, I, I don't know. Uh, at least for the people who communicate with me, I have not lost family members. Um, my husband has not lost family members. We have... Uh, I tell you, we're in the lap of luxury, so what am I to complain about? Mm. I say I hate wearing the mask. I hate wearing the mask. I hate it when I don't understand the science or rather the the logic or rationale for doing it. Uh, When everyone is vaccinated and we're still required to wear it, I think, what the hell is going on? Why? You said if we, and it's not that you said, I mean, that's as far as we can all know, you don't have to wear a mask if everybody's vaccinated. So then why do I have to put on? But that's a discomfort. It's trivial. And if it's going to make someone in my community feel better, you know what? I'll just put it on. I'm not going to politicize that. Do you have to wear a mask outside where you are? Uh, not outside. In the beginning, it was outside, but now we don't have to. Not outside. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know how you would enforce that. I mean, well. unless you're in a pure dictatorship, but and this is uh, this is the United States of America. But you know, you walk into a business and they say, "Can you please wear it?" Um, because that's you know what we're all supposed to do. And then you just think it makes no point; it's superstitious. But you know what? I'll wear it. Well, when but we- I'm that kind of person, I know friends, I know people who are so defiant. And will say, I'm not going to wait. And then, and that, I think, in, oh God, I don't know how to explain this, but I wish we had, we felt that kind of passion about things that are life and death mm. and, and much more important than uh, you, you put this thing on, take it in, during the little, amount of time you're in that particular business and then just walk out and take it off but th- but that's me i you're echoing sort of my feelings about about this as well in terms of how exercised people are becoming and have been all along about the rules of the pandemic and objecting to those rules like when you just jumped on the on the call initially you were say, saying that australia has a pretty bad reputation at the moment because of all the videos that are circulating and going viral of police overreach, especially in Victoria where Melbourne is in enforcing lockdowns. But I sort of share, I mean, living here, it is uh, exhausting to have had to go through. I mean, basically what happened was that the government screwed up the procurement of vaccines and didn't get in enough of an order from Pfizer until about three months after the US and Canada and UK had uh, had gotten their orders secured. This is last, you know, June, July of 2020. Australia didn't order enough vaccines until November. And uh, at the time, we had successfully kept the virus out. We just closed the borders, essentially. And uh, if you came into the country, then you had to spend two weeks in, an, in a hotel uh, and before you could leave. And we used lockdowns and and contact tracing to eliminate any viral spread in the community. And that only took about nine weeks originally. And then everyone was able to go out and for 13 months between May of 2020 and February or March of this year, Sydney at least was completely free and mostly no masks, occasional outbreaks from hotel quarantine, uh, which were suppressed with good contact tracing and some localized uh, lockdowns, but no city-wide lockdown in Sydney for over a year. And then Delta came and Delta escaped and it changed all the epidemiology and all of a sudden uh, what the public health experts thought they could stay on top of, they weren't able to. And um, because we weren't sufficiently vaccinated, the question was, do you allow the city to become essentially transposed into where Northern Italy was last March Mm. or New York City was last March? Or do you uh, impose restrictions until we can get the vaccination rates up to 70 or 80 percent and avoid swamping the hospitals? And so Australia and New Zealand and Singapore and Japan to some extent and Singapore to some extent have had this weird decision that Europe and North America never had to take because they didn't manage to eliminate the virus at all successfully initially which is do we choose to unleash it or do we make a a bit of a faustian pact and a trade-off and essentially impose quite illiberal authoritarian rules for 
a sort of 10 to 12 week period and while we're getting desperately vaccinated and they chose the latter but i i can totally understand that to a foreign eye especially to a lot of my american friends when they see isolated incidents of you know the police enforcing one silly rule or another you know telling someone who's sunbathing on a beach to move along even though there's no one else there or uh you know asking questions and going to people's going to people's doors to see whether or not they were involved in an anti-lockdown protest some weeks ago or something that all looks like we've become a dictatorship but uh i think in the context of the short-term emergency crackdown Mm -hmm. uh, those are i regard those more as unfortunate examples of a global phenomenon of police overreach rather than something specific to australia and i I think in six months uh those there won't be any more of that and uh you know each country will have had its own failings in dealing with the pandemic and maybe australia australia's kind of bullying nanny state authoritarian streak came out a little bit more than i would like but the deaths of australian democracy are greatly exaggerated i would say <laughs> yeah. And and I'd say on that note, you know, any democracy, liberal democracy, any really any society, let me tell you this. And and I think it's probably a, a law of nature is this. If there is an actual emergency, real emergency. Uh, I'm talking about second world war type of emergency. Um, even liberal societies have to become authoritarian. Mm. And I think deep down, every human being understands that when you have that kind of catastrophic challenge, if you have a functioning government, that particular government has to make choices that are just awful and, and limit liberty. And but that the argument for that, the argument for that is we have to make these terrible choices for this moment, for as long as this terrible uh, challenge uh, lasts. So it could be war, it could be a pandemic, it could be whatever it is. And, and you have to argue it, and you have to, as a government, especially a liberal government. You have to answer all of these questions. It is no time to say whose fault was it, who is to blame, and so on. You, it's right mm. now people are dying, and the government has to take these emergency actions. Now, and please let me just finish my thought because I wanted to say to you: in liberal societies, a key component. Well, shall I say, uh, since nineteen forty-five. Uh, were almost not confronted with this kind of life and death matter. And so what you describe as a life and death is always different from, I don't know, I'm talking about places where life is cheap and it's Hobbesian and it is brutal and short. And so at what point do we allow the government to say, this is it, and from now onwards, everybody's going to stay indoors, uh, and we're going to take this draconian, uh, liberty-curtailing measures. How do you explain that to the public? Mm. 
what I think the pandemic has taught us is where there is high trust, people trust their governments, um, people are willing to say, okay, uh, in this case, uh, I, I will just abide by these constraints, restraints, uh, curtails to liberty. Uh, it's necessary and it's rightly understood self-interest. If I do it, my neighbor will do it. We all get to survive. It's win-win. And we're all hanging together in a situation we don't understand. Not yet. And I think this is then what comes uh, for liberal governments as opposed to authoritarian governments, which is what is it about the pandemic that we know? What could we know? When did we know it? Who was responsible for what? And when are these um, constraints to liberty going to end? Mm. Any government that can answer that quite, like meet, look at people in the eye, the voters, and say, and be honest and be transparent. This is what we know at this point. Five months later, we know a little bit more. Ten months later, we know a little bit more. Okay, the vaccine then showed up. We then require you to trust. It's all about trust and winning the trust of the people. Mm. Take this vaccine. Then what happens after you've taken the vaccines? How will that change things? And I think almost every government, and shamefully so, every liberal government literally failed at distinguishing themselves from governments that are authoritarian and illiberal where they impose things. Mm. I live in the United States of America. It's not the government of Singapore. It's not the government of China. It's not the government of any other benign or malign authoritarian government. And our government has failed under Trump and under Biden. They've simply failed at these basic things. And so to Why? blame Australia and to say Australia or oh, the Australians are... No, the Australians are really no different from any other society. They've been told to go into lockdown. People have been asking, can you... Asking their own government, why? And their own government cannot explain to them long enough. And I would say, hooray for Australia. Good for you that you tell your government, we're not standing for this. Then the government responds in mm. the way they did. And I think what the Australian government then did is make use of these emergency powers. And I caution the Australian government and I caution any other government in a liberal society, when you respond with these sort of, you know, powers that are really reserved for only emergency moments, you respond in that way, you are inviting more backlash. And, and then the lines between what is an authoritarian government What's a liberal government that starts to blur? Yes, and it's interesting that uh, when you mandate things, you ferment the backlash that prevents you from reaching the goal that the mandate is supposed to achieve in the first place. I've, I've been rethinking this a bit lately in the context of vaccines. Um, I wrote a piece for Barry Weiss's Substack a few weeks ago. Uh, she was putting together some opinions about uh, vaccine mandates 
from around the world. And I, my piece basically said that vaccine mandates are a cruel and intolerable infringement on personal liberty, and I support them uh, because I didn't see any other way of getting life back to normal. But in the past few weeks, I've read more data out of places like Spain and other places that have really high vaccination rates that have achieved them not through mandates, which can provoke a backlash, but through more community legwork and all the boring old things that help persuade people and build the trust that you're talking about. Uh, So it is a delicate balance. And I I think even a lot of Australians would accept that the the government has has gotten to a point at which the, the restrictions became too driven by fear and nannying and inadequately driven by science and the values of of liberalism but let's talk about those values of liberalism because it is interesting what people focus on people you know people who object very much to the australian lockdowns talk about freedom being under threat in australia and the building of mandatory quarantine facilities as being like concentration camps and I find it odd because Australia does run actual concentration camps for people who arrive by boat and we put them on Nauru and Papua New Guinea so that they can't get asylum in Australia. And our countries are doing all kinds of things. And, you know, your focus on human rights in the Muslim world is another thing that sort of bubbles along in the background and never quite manages to make the front page to an extent at which it becomes a fashionable thing for people to be concerned about. So they're always concerned about the latest transgression that's jangling right in front of our faces, but not so much on the bigger things that we might want to look at. Where should our gaze be going at the moment? My gosh, you have packed so much. (laughs) (laughs) So where should I begin? Well, let me begin by uh, revisiting what we just talked about, which is if a government is trustworthy, meaning worthy of the trust of the people who voted for that government or who, um, uh, even if they didn't vote for that particular government, they recognize the legitimacy of the government. What you have then is trust and truth and transparency and there's a communication where uh, the government knows something, they know it. Uh, If they, knowing all of this, um, if they uh, abuse that trust, there's uh, the backlash that comes through what we call the ballot box and again, a, a distinguishing factor um, from authoritarian governments. I was I, I grew up in a repressive society, repressive family, repressive community, various repressive governments. Why were they repressive? Because they didn't trust. If you don't trust your own children to tell you the truth because they are too scared, that they're frightened, they can't tell you the truth, what the children do is they lie to you. You have no transparency. You have lies, you have deceit, and you empower that way the people who can deceive the most. In essence, that is the true meaning of corruption. It's those of us who are clever enough to lie and cheat and deceive in ways that other people can't see, or if they see it, they think it's good for them. And I want to go back over and over again to that what is it that distinguishes an authoritarian government 
from a liberal government. With liberty, what you want to do is you want to entice, you want to persuade, you want to um, seduce people to come to your way of thinking. And you put a lot of hard work into persuasion. But for persuasion to make sense, logic also has to make sense. So this is a long way of saying to you, um, why is Australia a rich country, a powerful country? Um, Why is Afghanistan a poor country, a savage country, a country that depends on outsiders to rescue it from its own tragedy? Fundamentally, that's why. Because you either invest in trusting your population by persuading them, or you invest in forcing them, coercing them to do things that they don't want to do. That's the fundamental difference. And I think the pandemic, immigration, national identity, globalization, all of these issues of today are making, they're confronting us with these with this reality, do we want a trust-based society, truth-based society, or do we want to take the shortcut, which is very appealing, make people do things that they don't want to do. And when you do that, if you control the levers of physical force, people will lie, they will cheat. Go back to the pandemic, people will say they're vaccinated when they're not vaccinated. People, and then you have to come up and be creative. You have to come up with ever more powers of making sure that people are not cheating and lying. It becomes ever more invasive, and then it becomes completely self-destructive. One of the things that you raise about trust in your, your new book, Prey, is the trust breakdown, especially in Western Europe, between communities who've been there for a long time and the recent influx of migrants. Um, what is that fraction? What is that friction? So again, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll literally place everything on the fundamentals of truth is this. There are some immigrants who come into places like Australia, America, and various countries in Europe. They are leaving places where they don't have trust, where violence is uh, paramount, they want to adjust, they want to adopt the norms, the rules, the values, and they, they, they succeed, they thrive. But in truth, there are also people who just go because that's how, as human beings, animals, that's how we are hardwired. You leave an uncomfortable place, you try to go to a place where things are more comfortable. But then you haven't changed your way of doing things. And then there are challenges. Those challenges, they can range from people um, not seeking employment uh, because uh, a government will provide welfare ever so readily to committing crimes or, or doing things that in the country of origin may have been acceptable, but in the country that you come to are actual crimes. Here, one specific example is child marriage, polygamy, um, in some parts of the world, these things are not considered crimes. They are considered to be, um, you know, it, it's the norm. Mm. Then, so then you have an encounter. 
between two different societies, different backgrounds, different cultures, different ways of doing things. A liberal society would be... Um, I'm, I'm looking for the right words here. They, they, a liberal society with um, based on the fundamentals of how can we gain the trust of the most people in society uh, would do well if they were honest about these things and say, well, now you're here and we do things differently. You think it's a good thing to marry a nine-year-old. We think it's a crime. We're not going to allow it. And that, I think, is the failure in the 21st century of liberal societies is that the prevailing philosophy is one in which they think that they can persuade by uh, condoning or, um, I don't know, allowing in some ways for these things to take place in a liberal society. There, there are no red lines. All boundaries are blurred. Uh, only when it comes to immigrants. And, and, and in that sense, I think you, what you then achieve is this. You get contempt from the people who come from different cultures because you do things differently. And so being human, being tribal, people who do things uh, in a different way from the way you do things, you have contempt for them, you feel sorry for them but you also gain contempt from your own society because your own voters ask you, so where's the red line? We have laws. If we have laws, but we don't enforce them, then what? Where, where do the boundaries lie? And our politicians, our academics, our journalists in liberal societies from Australia to America to Canada to Europe, we don't seem to be able to answer these questions. How does this How relate, Ryan, to what we were just talking about, about uh, winning people over with sugar rather than forcing them to do what you want in the context of vaccine mandates? Uh, you know, the, the delicate dance of stitching together trust rather than enforcing rules, because part of the criticism of you and of people who would like to reform to see greater reform of Islam and greater accountability for Muslim migrants in the West uh, to adhere to Western rules is uh, that you're driving uh, moderate Muslims into the arms of more extreme or conservative Muslims by uh, demonizing them all or making generalizations about how they behave rather than winning them over to the, the liberal project. What is the balance between enforcing liberal rules on smaller communities who may be more conservative versus allowing them to make their way towards liberalism at their own pace? I think fundamentally a liberal society recognizes that there is such a thing as individual agency. You make choices. That's If, if that's the premise that your society is based on, then you will be able to persuade most human beings to accept the notions of science and collaboration 
and the idea of and I you know I'm a student of political science and we used to use this phrase win-win and I always used to have this win-win so how do I win and you win when we have a conflict of interest and they always used to say to us then don't leave any money on the table but I would compare it to um, my Somali clan background which was um, very much about win-lose when you win you don't just win and take what's on the table. You humiliate the loser. You kill them. You take their women as slaves. You take their children as slaves. Uh, that's a win. The definition of victory was crystal clear in my Somali clan background as it is in all the illiberal um, societies in the world. What was appealing about liberalism to me was that you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to kill other human beings, humiliate them, enslave them, etc., etc. You could persuade them to say there's something in it for you. If you get vaccinated and I get vaccinated, we can go back and resume our lives. Now, how can I trust you as the government or the figure of authority? that the vaccination is worth taking when I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical as a black American because of, I don't know if you how much of the history of um, America you know, but mm. uh, black Americans were abused, enslaved, and subjected to all sorts of terrible things. And one of the vivid memories they have are these um, experiments where uh, all sorts of uh, medical and genetic experiments were you know, carried out on them. And so when you come around and say, take a vaccination, any African-American logically and rationally will say, oh, yeah, right, you take it first. Hmm. Why should I? So you, you want to entice, you want to persuade, you want to say it's a win-win. If you want to say it's a win-win, then the science behind it has to be transparent And I think the best part of science that I love the most is this. It's the part that says, I don't know. You admit what you don't know. That's what separates you from superstition. The witch doctor in Somalia says, I'm going to give you this concoction and you are going to be fantastic. You're going to be better. The scientist, the true scientist will say, I'm going to give you this pill. I don't know what it will do for you because we've done research after research, study after study. It has helped this many people. And based on that knowledge, we hope and we think it's going to help you. But if it doesn't, you belong to the minority, whatever. I'm, I'm thinking, so I'm trying to, to use the kind of language I would use when I'm trying to persuade someone to take a vaccination vaccines have been revolutionary. They have changed human life. They've eradicated things like smallpox and polio and so on. So take that. It is a risk. Anytime you take something into your system, you are taking a risk. We hope this is what we've done to achieve this. Now, once you have it and it's worked with the largest number of people, and this is exactly what we're seeing with these vaccines, then our government has to answer questions, then why do I have to wear a mask? Why do I have to 
live with these restrictions. And then it, every single answer takes you back to agency because there are people who don't want to take the vaccine. It's a fast world problem. It's a luxury problem. There are people, even after all the evidence, who are saying, I want to risk getting COVID. At that point, we're talking about agency. We're saying you are taking a risk. It's a trade-off. If you get it, you deal with the consequences. We have to talk to people like adults. And if you say, well, we have the vaccine, we're going to force it down everybody's throat or everybody's arm, I, I think then you start to enter the waters of lose, lose, lose. And that's what some of our governments are doing. I don't want to stretch the analogy on too <laughs> until it breaks between uh, anti people who are skeptical of the vaccine. I don't want to say anti-vaxxers because some of them think that that's demonizing, but people who are skeptical of the vaccine or hesitant about taking it and other subcultures. But let's talk about uh, about Muslim communities in the West because I think there is something of an analog here about how much should the majority and the elites be able to impose their will on dissident communities. And the first part of your book really lays out the problem, as you see it, of uh, what you call the unsafe streets in Europe. And I think in order to talk about integration, assimilation and multiculturalism, we have to understand what's happening in some of the suburbs of big European cities. Can you just give us a thumbnail sketch of that as you see it? My book is called Pray, and when I talk about pray, it's P-R-E-Y, not pray to God, uh, but pray as in hunter and hunted. And yes, uh, human and animal life is that the males hunt and the women are hunted. But then there's something called civilization. And over time, we're in a place where we think it shouldn't, things shouldn't work that way anymore. Women should feel, females should feel protected. That's what distinguishes us from animal and have agency and be able to um, get educated and work and be free. And uh, in fact, empirically, we've seen that the societies that invest in that kind of thing, where women are no longer prey, that they are the advanced societies. They are the societies that are wealthy and peaceful and where people want to come to. Now, if you're coming from Afghanistan or Iraq or Somalia or whatever, and you're a male and you're young and you're still, uh, I don't know, answering to these instincts, I think we should, again, and I'm going back to agency, say, look, here's what how it works. You're now in Australia or you're now in Sweden. Who cares? We expect you to behave in this way. I think the assumption that you don't know is justified. I think maybe it's the responsibility of the society that's receiving you to educate you in this way in a, a world that is globalizing at a very fast pace. But if you continue, if you violate these rules, norms, values, I think you should have the dignity of your agency. So our politicians, I think, in liberal societies, I think they rob individuals of agency. It's one thing to say, you're welcome, you can live here, 
will help you like in terms of welfare i wouldn't give people free this and free that free education free 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 i would say here's what we're going to do we're going to give you the roadmap the manual of how our society works and how it thrives we're going to help you with that you defy it you go back to where you came from i don't i don't have any problems it has nothing to do with skin color it has nothing to do with oppression colonialism slavery jim crow all of these things i think that they're huffed up and puffed up to mean nothing the the, the real transaction is this i come from a society where my life is threatened by the chaos i have no economic future i'm a young man life is short and it's brutal and it's nasty and i'm coming to a society where i think i have a chance an opportunity to make a living to marry to have children to see old age that's the transaction you allow me into that society that's humane and human friendly there is a manual by which you have to live i adopt it i don't i go back that's really the only the true leadership would be someone or a number of people who are able to communicate that an international institution like the united nations would be an organization that is able to communicate that and that's where i think 21st century leadership has failed and failed appallingly you take any private company you mentioned substack earlier take any private company private companies businesses enterprises that don't abide by the rules that make them survive thrive be competitive they go down they go extinct immediately why does it work when it is about corporations and governments are supposed to pretend that it doesn't why is it that one family the family where there is a father and a mother and those two people invest in raising their children to be the best that they can those families thrive where you don't have a father and you bring children into the world and things go awry they don't thrive maybe the occasional child does but that is because of the child because of fortune because of what we always thought was wrong which is arbitrariness there's it's arbitrary for a child in that kind of context to come out of poverty and all of these challenges and so then we admire that child but the answer is not let's then all go into single parenthood and that's what we're doing and i think the clear failure of leadership that we're seeing is that we are making the wrong the people who are saying that they are leaders are taking agency away from individuals is why are they doing that is it partly an attempt to uh kowtow to community leaders in smaller subcommunities is it because they think that 
there are higher principles than liberalism. Can you put some flesh on, on the bones? Well, part of it, obviously, is well-intentioned, and I think I can take the pain away. You, if you become a parent, you will see how you rescue your own children from the pain of learning. Uh, you can see in your own household, uh, as opposed to the household. I, I was burned many times by the time I was age five because I kept running to the fire. My grandmother would say, she'll learn. <laughs> and I have a few scars to show for that. I learned the hard way. Now, not every child learns that way. Many children die. So I'm not saying, I'm not proposing that we go back to that kind of, you know, harshness of of um, trying to bring about insight. I don't know. I let my kids climb on pretty tall rocks so that they can fall off and hurt themselves rather than constantly shouting at them to get down. That so that's one way of doing it, and and I think there's and then the, and then there's that soft way of let's cushion them against possibly everything that could hurt them, and and I don't know what you achieve with that cushioning, and then obviously there's also a lot of guilt in wealthy societies where because you haven't been there physically, personally, uh, and 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 present in the way that you should have been. Uh, you give them all this extra presence and whatever to make you feel less guilty. So in the rich world, there is a lot of, well, we colonized and we enslaved and we are, I don't know, we, we have it, it, things are fine here. So a little bit of giving is not a problem. I think uh, if you talk about good intentions, there's a lot of that. And then there's, of course, narrow interests and profit-making and greed. And, and so it's a combination of all of these things. It's a, it's, it, it may be even as, uh, you know, gosh, cynical as I just want to win the next election because I like my job as a member of parliament <laughs> or prime minister or president or whatever. <laughs> and so now I'm going to, you know, make these decisions that have a huge impact on the lives of masses and masses of human beings just because you want to stay in your job. And if you want to stay in your job as prime minister or president or MP or person of power, you have to think about these things. You have to understand that there are consequences to your leadership. And leadership can never be that you rob a people of their agency. You look at the welfare state, the history of the welfare state, which was noble. And now the welfare state has become a magnet for people in poor countries to think, if only I could go to Australia, I never have to worry about food. I never have to worry about shelter. I never have to worry about uh, health care or this or that because they'll give it to me for free. If you're a leader and you understand that dynamic, then you should take the leadership role of saying, oh, no, that's not how it works. Why? Is it, is it not appropriate that a, a country which is, has one of the highest per capita, uh, you know, wealth in the world, that anyone who comes here should be able to avail themselves of, what, of, a, of a part of that bounty to get themselves started? It's one way of looking at it. I had a very rich uncle when my father wasn't there to look after me. 
the idea was we just go to the rich uncle and we exhort him, make him feel guilty that he has so much and so he has to give it to us. If you follow that logic, all you will do is beg, blackmail, exhort. That's what you will do. But what if you knew that purely because of incentive, if that uncle had said, get out of here, you go fend for yourself, or maybe I'll help you, I'll pay the school fees, or I'll pay. but somehow I'm going to help you find a fishing rod, not give you a fish, things would be different. And we all know story after story, this is the human story, that those who are given fishing rods, they are the ones who come on top. They are the ones who thrive. So yeah, if your government thinks, oh, we are so rich, let's bring everyone in and give them fish. Well, that's going to be a very temporary affair. And they're not going to like you for it. They're going to hate you for it. Because now that you've brought, you've given the first slice of fish, then what about the second and the third and the fourth? Then why are you make why are you sending me to prison? Because I committed a crime. In my country, it's not a crime. Here, it's a crime. You're sending me to prison. So that same leader who gave you the fish now has to answer to the, the complexity of human interest. And, and that's where our leaders fail. It's when things get complex, by then they're retired. Hmm. I mean, it's. do you see a difference between Europe and the US on this? Because I think Australia probably is situated somewhere between the the enormous welfare states that you see in some of the European, especially Northern European countries, and the sparseness of the welfare state in the United States. And I think most Australians would agree with the fishing rod analogy. Don't give them fish, but give them as many tools as, as they need, as migrants need to be able to make it in your society. And don't be too mean in helping them uh, get to where get up on to their own two feet so that they won't need too many fish in the future. Where is the balance being struck correctly? So in America, on the two coasts, we have uh, East Coast, West Coast, where I think our politics and our debates and our discussions are becoming very Europeanized in the sense of just, uh, for a lot of people, it's also the easy way out. It's like with parents, just give them a, put, stick a device in front of them. <laughs> uh, the kid, and, and then you don't have to deal with the noise and the distraction and so on. And so on the East Coast and the West Coast, I think we do have this, let's give them the fish. On the East Coast and West Coast, we also have people who are in power and in positions of leadership uh, who got there because they gave things away, because they believe. We have a generation, the millennials and beyond, who really think and believe in this stuff. They believe that if you give people fish, you get elected, you, you are popular, you're wonderful. And so they all they want to do is just extract taxes and give people fish, uh, whether they're residents or whether they come from elsewhere. And then in the middle of the country, I think it's... <laughs> um, there are places in America that are like Mogadishu, mm. where, you know, you don't make it, you don't make it. And so uh, 
and, and our climate is not as temperate and wonderful as the European climates. We have all sorts of, um, you know, challenges from and 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 the the people in the middle of the country they don't hide behind climate change and or there's a hurricane because a, a human being did something no it's you you came to this country and it's a harsh country and the landscape is harsh and you want to survive and you did this because you wanted to and so you have to and nobody's going to rescue you if you left Guatemala or El Salvador or Mexico or the Middle East. And you're here in the middle of the country, in between the two coasts, the places that they call flyover. It's because you want to make it. So either they get a fishing rod or they get nothing. And mm. so the people that I find um, the most interesting to talk to that I learned the most from are those first generation immigrants who actually made it and they say no one gave us anything mm. and mm. and they and they say the only thing this is really what makes for them what makes a difference is that um, their so-called governments of the countries that they were leaving running away from that were in their affairs all the time that they have refuge from that so they have no problem surviving they just don't want the government telling them what to do. And, and they understand and, the true meaning of freedom. Yeah. And the, and the, <laughs> I was just and reading, that, you're yeah. reminding me in terms of governments standing up for liberal values and uh, allowing people to stand on their own two feet as long as they abide by common rules of liberal democracy. I, did you see what uh, Justin Trudeau? in Canada uh, <laughs> said recently about there have been, a, there was a book burning, a series of book burning ceremonies by First Nations Canadians in the, in one of the provincial school districts. Uh, this was a post-colonial, anti-colonial thing. It's a purification by fire of texts that are oppressive. And Trudeau was asked about it and and said that it is it's not for a, a white non-indigenous male to be commenting on the practices of uh, of First Nations people who've been oppressed for so long. But personally, he he wouldn't choose to burn books, but he can't judge anybody else who would who would burn books in order to overcome colonialism. And it did make me wonder, like if if you can't draw a line in the sand at at burning books, then what kind of a liberal infrastructure are you setting up for migrants to come and aspire to be part of? So I'm going to ask you a question. Since we are talking to an Australian audience, the fluffy white stuff or colored stuff that you put on a birthday cake, um, <laughs> what do you call it? What do you call it's, it? You it's call icing, icing here, it? but people would understand frosting as well. Frosting. So to me, Justin Trudeau is pure frosting. There's no substance in there. The guy is pure frosting. Whatever you want to put on him, you can put sprinkles on him. You can. He will say whatever it is that you you think is is sweet, and um, disappears as quickly as frosting or is as nauseating as frosting if you eat enough of it. And and I, I've had enough of um, Justin Trudeau and other frosting type of leadership like that. 
there is no substance to it. There is no substance whatsoever. Listen, if you're an Australian, you burn books today, tomorrow you are burning people. It's just how it works. You don't, you're not prepared to process, deal with ideas, concepts, curiosity. So we started with agency and we talked a lot about agency. And an individual human being with agency is curious. And people who are curious are going to put their thoughts, their ideas on paper and, well, now on, in the internet. Mm. For those of us who understand that history of ideas and how it has advanced humanity, anybody who entertains the idea of burning books, books, don't read it. Don't go to the library. Don't open that book. But to go as far as to burn it, that is a mind so warped, so sick, and a mind that is hell-bent on burning a book is a mind that is open to the idea of burning books. I plead guilty. I was invited to burn Salman Rushdie's book. I was 19 years old, 18 years old. I, I was a teenager. I mean, maybe I can hide behind ignorance and youth and all that. I had not read the book. But if it wasn't the book and it was Salman Rushdie himself, I always ask, and this is my nightmare, what would I have done? Would I then have burned the man? And that is, it's those societies where ignorance prevails. And for Justin Trudeau, to refuse to take a stance on that, I think it is so horrific. He thinks he's doing the Native Americans, the Native Canadians, the Aborigines of Canada. He's doing them a favor by being vague on that. I'm disgusted by him. It's hard for me to know why liberalism is falling out of favour the way that it is. I don't, I mean, when I hear you say, if the book is offensive, then don't read it. I am reminded of the controversy around Dave Chappelle's latest Netflix special, where a lot of the cultural elite are saying that it should be removed. I mean, this is something that we keep seeing come up, and I don't want to bang on about cancel culture, because I think it it sheds more heat than light at this stage. But there is clearly some kind of generational or cultural rift between the point of view that you just articulated, uh, which is that if a book is offensive to you, then don't read it. And an increasingly popular point of view, which is that the book is not just offensive to me, it is a representative, uh, it is a, it is a kind of totemic thing in a fabric, a network of oppression of sexism, misogyny, colonialism, patriarchy, white supremacy that has been conspiring for centuries to keep down people of colour and transgender people and LGBTQI people and that you need to dismantle that 
through force. And part of that is holding these points of view to a very high level of accountability, which might be uh, excluding them from polite company, excluding them from public discourse, removing their content from streaming services, and ultimately maybe banning those books. Are you seeing a, a kind of a, I feel like I've got two one leg in each camp but each one is on a rowboat and they're drifting apart in a river and eventually we're going to fall in the in in the river and i don't know how to bring them back together but it's fake accountability because real accountability and again i swear i don't mean to harp on this but uh, you know i have i think through the same things that you do i'm going to make an admission i had no clue who david chappelle was until this incident. Hmm. Now I know who he is. I'm watching his work and I'm thinking, good for you. What a brave man. What an awesome man. Because here's what he says to me and the rest of uh, the people in show business and his audiences. I'm a comedian. I want to make you laugh. Now, as you know, I hope you know, (laughs) that the things that will make you laugh the most, sense of humor, irony, just the absurdity of being a human being. It's the things that most of us don't want to talk about. So this guy is taking that stuff on. To me, he's a hero right now. And I'm watching very closely what Netflix is going to do. Because Netflix's entire business model is on entertainment. It's on free speech. It's on all of these things. So what would I want to hold David Chappelle accountable for? Make me laugh. Entertain me. Divert me away from the daily drudge of my life. Netflix, bring this, be the platform who brings all of these different voices and images and whatever it is that you do. Do that right. That's real accountability. Do you disagree? No, I don't disagree, but I feel like I come from an old school. I feel like I'm the youngest person of the old generation of liberals, and maybe it's because I've lived in the States and worked in the media that I... Liberalism, and I'm going to interrupt you because liberalism, liberalism again, and those who understand the philosophy of liberalism entirely is to say, help us remember... What, why liberalism as an ism came about? Where did it come from? And what did it accomplish exactly? And what we are going to see is it is the only ism amongst all other isms <laughs> that has actually succeeded in providing human beings with the longest possible life expectancy in the... And again, these are... Averages, right? Um, in a context of not perfect, but uh, you know, stability. People, ha- people uh, in places where liberalism prevails, don't have to worry about what they're going to eat next. Their shelter, law and order. Um, life expectancy and we've even gone to the place where we are conquering diseases you know some of these uh, guys here in silicon valley they are going after trying to make people live as long as 150 years old fantastic i applaud that but then what are we failing at 
we're failing at telling the younger generations what the trade-offs are and what it means. You can't always have people think just like you do or read the books that you read or have the tastes that you have. But here's what we give you if you're, if you're a true liberal, and, and I mean a liberal society, a proper liberal government. Here, here's the options they give you. Turn off the television if you don't want to watch it. There's so much on television that offends me these days. I don't turn it on, but I have that choice. It's called a remote control. You don't want to listen to what David Chappelle has to say, then don't listen to him. If you don't want to hear, it, it's just rubbish. What a lot of these people are saying is they want to live in bubbles where they control other people's bubbles. You know what? Whether you call it a bubble in a liberal society where you're wealthy enough to police David Chappelle or not, it's pure tribalism. This is just going back. This is like literally the way when I was a child. That clan is different and they're awful and they're bad and they have no right to exist. Let's go and attack them. Let's bully their children. Let's take their property. Let's rape their women. Let's burn their... That's... It's tribalism. It's tribalism shrouded in a new language, the language of liberalism and modernity, but it's tribalism nonetheless. If you don't want to listen to David Chappelle, don't listen to him. If you don't listen to him, you don't flick that Netflix thing on, you will not be offended. How about that? <laughs> Ayan, I, I, I'd love to, let's wrap up by whether or not you are optimistic or pessimistic about the fate of, of Western liberalism, because I can, depending on the day you pick me on, I can either believe in the resilience of enlightenment values and, uh, and free speech, or I can think that maybe they were uh, a momentary blip that uh, managed to succeed for a while, but that ultimately the majority of people have never really been liberals and have been much more interested in enforcing their own tribal uh, instincts than in giving other people the benefit of the doubt. Where do you fall? Okay, so I think technically you are a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm the oldest millennial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, that's uh, that's bracing. It's amazing. So in in the scenarios of optimism and pessimism, I would say for me the most optimistic scenario is if uh, millennial leaders are able to convey um, to their fellow generation what the value is of true liberalism. And that then we're going to get into a conversation about institutions, schools, family, church, corporations, if the prevailing norms for each of those institutions, and then including government as well, is truly liberal, I think you have a best-case scenario. If we fail to convey and understand, it's, it's, I understand it because I remember a time in my life when I wasn't free. And in fact, when I became free in 2001, I was in the Netherlands, and, and these people decided, okay, I said, I, I'm no longer a Muslim. And they reminded me why I was no longer a Muslim, because they said, well, now you deserve to die. And so then I'm surrounded by all these um, armed guys. And every time I would pinch myself and say, why do I have armed guys around me? I don't lead a militia. I don't lead a government. 
I don't, I'm not taking anybody's freedom away. So the only reason why I have people with weapons guarding me is because of my conscience. I couldn't believe it. But that boils down to liberalism. And if, you, if you've been confronted with something like that, you understand and appreciate liberalism. This is the idea that you can think what you want as long as you don't harm others. If your generation understands that and it gets that through the institutions, preserve the institutions that already have that sense and uh, promote and advance that idea, I think things will be fine. You fail to do that, you'll become like frosting, like Justin Trudeau, whom you mentioned. And you know what? You'll be eaten or licked, but in any case, you'll disappear very quickly. Ayan, thank you for holding the torch aloft. Uh, the new book is Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. We didn't even really get to start to talk about it, but it's so interesting to hear your thoughts on everything else. Thank you for your time. You're so welcome. Thank you so much. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.